Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of film. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me today... Sean Baker. Today's topic is the 1949 film, 12 O'Clock High. So this film, it takes it's another World War II movie. It takes place in late 1942, early 1943. And this, the reason why that time period is shown, because this is the time before D-Day. D-Day has not happened yet. We're still fighting in North Africa. We haven't even... Uh, advanced into Italy yet. So this is early in the European campaign, and this it would focus on this air squadron. And they are, because they're one of the few air squadrons over in Europe at this time, they are really being stretched thin. We follow them, we open up on them, and they've just suffered a costly mission. They've lost five planes, and we focus on this leader named Colonel Davenport. And Davenport, while Contounce looks like he's a good leader, he's well-respected by his men, he looks out for his men, but you can tell that he's being worn down by this. He doesn't get the supplies he needs. He's constantly being asked to go on mission after mission with no breaks. And after complaining to one of his superiors, which was Brigadier General Savage, played by Gregory Peck, Gregory Peck feels that he is not no longer fit to command because he's over-identifying with his men. After And after they've breach with his superior he they want him to discipline one of his soldiers who misread a map reading that caused them to be off schedule and he does not want to do that because he doesn't want to cause undue emotional stress for that yes soldier because of this they decide to relieve him of command and now savage played by gregory peck is now tasked to sort of right the ship get this bring up the morale and get this fighting crew back because they really have to because they are, like I said, they're pretty much the only ones over there right now and they're not getting the supplies they need. So if they go down or they say, to hell with it, who knows what's going to happen? So he's tasked over the time people because he's, you know, he's the typical, you know, tough-nosed, strict guy. Nobody likes him because they like Colonel Davenport more. But over time, he wins them over. The morale increases. And they start going on bombing runs but then at the very end, he's, but as you see overall, he starts, you know, just like Davenport, Savage starts caring for his men. He looks out for them. He's becoming like a Dav, uh, Colonel Davenport. And at the very end, he breaks down at the end because he's seen all the people that he's worked with um, go down in other missions. And he has a breakdown, so he's sitting out the last mission. But supposedly it's a big success, and that's sort of, sort of the end of the movie. He gets out of this catatonic state and he goes back to sleep. Major Stovall, who we've seen that he's a flash forward, it's after the war, and yeah. he looks at the field, which is now abandoned, Yeah, and he's back, and so that's sort of, you know, that's what he yeah. leaves, and he's been reminiscing, and now he's heading back home, and that's yeah. the end of the movie. Yeah, Major, uh, <clears throat> actually at the, time, at the time of the beginning of the movie, you know, Colonel Stovall is having a, the movie is, in essence, a long uh, reminiscence of his, a flashback of his over his career. And uh, we see at the at the beginning of the the storyline in the film, he's at the point in in his career where he is a major and adjutant for uh, um, Keith Davenport, who's that first initial CO for this uh, squadron or for this group, and. Uh, he uh, kind of does uh, paperwork for him. We see him 
uh, in London after the war, or in some town after, I'm not sure it's London, uh, and he goes into an antique shop and he sees one of these uh, uh, ceramic uh, little characters. They're called Toby jugs. And it's a Robin Hood Toby jug. And these are collector's items even to this day. And what they are basically are recognizable characters that have been made into these, uh, these jugs. And it, uh, it has a great deal of significance for him. We see uh, later in the film that this was kind of, for lack of a better term, a mascot for this group, 908 Bombing Group, which is the group that uh, Davenport had commanded. And we see this story unfold, as you said, um, of Davenport essentially being relieved uh, because, as you say, um, the morale is low. They're called a hard luck unit. They seem to have had a lot of casualties. Not too surprising in that this is relatively early in the air war. Uh, um, it, the U.S. has not been in the war this long. Uh, this is a unit that's been sent to, sent over to England. It flies out of England, and they're doing some of the early bombing runs into into Germany, uh, targeting industrial um, um, sites like ball bearing plants, and which loom large in, in that last scene. Um, now, what's key to kind of understanding the historical context of uh, the beginning of that film is that at that time, um, the B-17s that ran these bombing missions did so without fighter support. There was there were not long-range fighters uh, that could make that trip into Germany at the time. So they were essentially traveling alone, big, slow, relatively slow, lumbering bombers, uh, kind of sitting ducks over over the targets. Um, that they were trying to hit in, in Germany. So they did have very high casualty rates and, and losses. And I, I think this movie does a very good job with, in, in that one of the opening sequences of at least telling the story of how brutal this is. We, we see one of the B-17s coming in for essentially a crash landing. It's, it's uh, Landing gear is not working. And we hear the story. We don't see it, whereas like in previous films we might uh, we would talked about, you know, like Private Ryan, we might have seen this kind of level of gore, but it's described, right? Mm -hmm. Guys come off the plane. They say the CO had been hit by uh, basically shrapnel from being hit by the Germans, and it, it uh, took out part of his brain, and it essentially made him completely irrational. He's trying to control the craft. He thinks the people in the craft with him are Germans. All the while, this poor guy, uh, a, a, a second lieutenant, Jesse Bishop, fictional character, is fighting him off and flying this plane in and landing it. Um, this is based on a true story, based on a, a, a real guy who did win a Medal of Honor, as we see in the film, wins a Medal of Honor. He won a Medal of Honor for this. He, he flew that aircraft in and landed it after hours of this kind of harrowing experience. So this unit has had a lot of this kind of harrowing experience. And as would happen with anybody that's a modicum of a human being, uh, Davenport becomes very concerned for the welfare of his men. They are stretched very thin. And uh, the problem, though, uh, from the command standpoint, which is... Uh, Major General Pritchard, who is the boss of the of Frank Savage, 
from his point of view is this one unit is quite clearly underperforming all the others and not 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 able to accomplish uh, the bombing missions that they've been assigned and he's 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 got to make some sort of a change or another in order to get you know the larger uh mission uh the war uh successfully completed so he's got a difficult choice to make so he actually sends savage as a kind of a eyes on observer to the unit and savage pretty quickly sees what's going on pritchard pretty quickly sees what what's going on um through no fault of his own really davenport his sympathy is has ended up not only making the unit in, uh, uh, incapable of accomplishing their missions but it also ends up putting the men in that unit for whom he does care in danger. Their mortality rates much higher than other units. So uh, what, what I think is kind of beautiful about the film is it, it shows this conflict in, as it were, loyalties uh, to the mission and loyalties to men. And it shows you how difficult it is to navigate that but how necessary it is to navigate it uh, uh, at least for uh, people that higher up in the chain of command when it comes to making that kind of a difficult decision of replacing a decent human being who unfortunately is not getting the job done and you see Pritchard realizes this you also see that Savage realizes this but you also see him there's that one scene where he is about to make his entrance into the unit and he knows he has a role he has has a role he has to play you kind of see him kind of bucking up getting ready he goes in he chews out that sergeant that's not in uniform remember that admonishes the um, security guard yeah admonishes that security guard who had just waved him through the gate just because he saw the stars on the on the vehicle right and he he gets out of that vehicle says what are you doing you know He's playing a role here, but there is a purpose behind the role. It's, it, it, I think it, again, addresses this, this uh, um, dual nature of, of the commander, right? Uh, the purpose behind it not only is to get this unit in fighting shape so that they can accomplish missions, but it's also to protect the lives of those guys in that unit. They are going to be in a... a uh, a position of uh, of having a higher probability of surviving if he plays it rough, gets them to where they can deal with the conditions they're having to deal with, fly missions, accomplish missions, and not let their, um, as it were, their emotions or their resentment get in the way. Yeah, and as you say, it's like we said early on, they are stretched thin because... This is early in the war, but I remember Pritchard even says, you know, we asked for 50,000 planes. We're lucky if we get 500. It's this case of you have to push them as hard as you possibly can. Even like they said, they've been going constant missions every day. They haven't had any like R&R or any 48-hour passes, but you still have to push them. And it's when it was savage, Mm -hmm. like you said, he's playing that role in the beginning it's like, we'll take Colonel Davenport any day. They, they all want to transfer out, but over time, he sort of wins them over. And interesting, after a briefing they do on one of their missions, which goes well, and it looks like they just messed with the 918th. 
Yeah. And just nobody responds. He even looks like. But later on, he makes that same gesture and then everybody's laughing. And you can see the next time he does a briefing, they're very, you know, involved. They're very into it because he's telling them, like, this is our first mission into Germany. Germany. He's like, you're right. You can yeah. tell over time he's building their morale up. Yeah. But and- over time... He lessens a little bit of his strictness, and he, I always see he becomes Davenport. He becomes concerned with them, and because he's flying, you know, he doesn't sit out a lot of missions. He sit, he's going in there, and that well, that second-to-last mission, when he sees the planes go up but down beside him, and then that's when he has that breakdown at the end, becomes yeah. catatonic, which has historical basis that has, doing some research, that did happen to one of the officers in the 306th bomb group. Yes, yes, and, and actually the... Um, all of these characters are based on people from the 306th bomber, which was an actual bomb group uh, located in Thurley in uh, England. And uh, the two scriptwriters, Cy Bartlett and Bernie Lay, served in that unit. And they based the uh, character Savage on Colonel Frank Armstrong, who didn't have the breakdown, oddly enough, but somebody else that they were familiar with did have that kind of a mm-hmm. breakdown. Um, and what's interesting about Colonel Armstrong as well is he had Cherokee heritage. So uh, um, speculation is that um, uh, uh, Lay decided he would name uh, the uh, character Savage, oh. uh, Savage for that reason. Um, interesting. But that the actual group, the 306, that did have did have this kind of morale problem. They were labeled the hard luck unit and so forth. Um, so I think that's what gives this film, uh, relative to its time, this is 1949, actually was released in 50, uh, a, a, a pretty high level of realism, um, as compared to your typical film dealing with World War II at the time. It, it shows the effect of battle fatigue, um, and, uh, the, the level of violence that these guys had to deal with on a day-to-day basis. It does a very good job of that. Yeah, and reading of many, it was screened for many members of that specific Air Force, and nearly all of them said, I can't think of a single thing to critique about this movie. It's nearly perfect. Which, yeah. you know, last time we talked was Saving Private Ryan, and been mixed by some people like Paul Fussell, who were kind of criticized that film, but this yeah. film is nearly unanimous in its respect from the veterans. Yeah, and one of those people that... Uh, was uh, some of the characters one of the one or more of the characters are lo- loosely based on or inspired by is Curtis LeMay, who was crucial in the European bombing campaign. Um, he said, I mean, and that, that kind of a high bar to get a, a critique, uh, a critical pass from Curtis LeMay. He said he could find nothing wrong with it, it was very good. I know when I first watched it, um. I did not see the catatonia, the, the PTSD episode coming. I really, it was almost as if, wow, this is out of place. This is something that you might see in a movie from the 60s or 70s, not one from 1950. Um, congrats. I mean, I was really saying kudos to the filmmakers for Showing that it can happen that. at any time. It's at any never time. a buildup. Right. And it's un- in, in, in its nature, unpredictable. But you do know, given the high level of stress, stress over an extended period of time, uh, it's more and more, more and more likely that it will occur at some point or another. 
But, um, you know, watching this film, I couldn't help but think of another film, and particularly one of the most famous books ever written, that kept propping into my mind was Catch-22. You can almost call this film the anti-Catch-22. For those who don't know, Catch-22 is about a fighter group in Italy. and it, But it's the same problem that the, the Colonel Cathcart in that movie is famously, in the book, is famously increasing the number of missions they have to fly. Every time it looks like they're about to hit the number, he raises it another five or ten missions. And the main character, Yosarian, is tr- keeps trying to find ways to get out of it. And another one of the characters, I forget his name, he finds a way, because he's always crash-landing his plane, and everybody thinks, oh, he's doing that because he's just a crazy, terrible pilot. What he's actually trying to do is crash the plane into the ocean and find a way where he can paddle back and get to Switzerland so he can sit out the rest of the war. It's just interesting because in that movie, the morale is low. They're all just trying to use any sort of loophole or any way to get out of it, which is famously Catch-22. There's no way to get out of it. But in this movie, that morale is low, but none of them at the end are trying to get out of it. They're all doing their mission, and the morale is increased. But I wonder, because Heller, the man who wrote the novel, was also part of Serbian World War II. I know he said that Catch-22 is more of a critique of Vietnam than it really was about World War II, but it's just two different looks at the same problem. And uh, two level, two very different outlooks. Um, you bring up Paul Fussell again. Um, I, would, I would probably say, given uh, what I've read from uh, Mr. Fussell, um, uh, that of the two films, he probably would resonate more with Catch-22 because his his view <laughs> is sometimes very deeply cynical of the whole experience of uh, World War II and, and service in the military. He, he, he tends to read a lot of the motivations as being uh, either naive or cases of something like false consciousness or something like that. Um, you don't you don't see that in this film. You see cynicism, some level of it, um, and a, a certain level of um, uh, despondency on the on the part of this particular uh, bomb group uh, early on in the film. But you see at the same time a a, a masterful uh, case of leadership in the person of Savage. He is able to. Uh, squelch that and it's not merely just to get the mission done it's also because at at a root level as any good leader is uh, does he does have a genuine concern for the people under him and he realizes that in order to put them in a better position to survive uh in, in essence i've got to toughen them up because the, the circumstances are not going to change. That is outside of our control. I can only control what I can control, and that is the attitude of uh, the people. So I'm going to have to put on this act, put myself under a great deal of stress. I'm also going to be leading from the front. I will go out on every bombing mission I possibly can. Uh, what I love about that is that he, the real guy did that, um, what I also love about the film is that you see a couple of cases where people that are basically staff, uh, like his driver, this, the, the kid that mm-hmm. keeps going from sergeant to private because he keeps screwing up, um, uh, they stow away on these missions without telling him because they want to take part. They want to be with their comrades. They want to uh, take part in the mission. And 
that all actually really happened. Um, so you see, you see over the course of that film that buy-in. Uh, the, the people don't wallow in their cynicism, as you see in Catch-22, where at every level of command, everybody is cynical in that movie. The mm-hmm. Buck Henry character, oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. they're just all terribly cynical. And they're just trying to wait out this damn war, get out of it. You're right, that's very much more of a kind of Vietnam-era uh, attitude, at least in terms of films, right? You, you don't see that. They move away from that. They actually f- form a, a, a cohesion as a unit and a pride in what they're doing, which, after all, is very important. They're uh, uh, running bombing missions into Germany and hopefully disabling that war machine. Um, and that, that occurs over the, the course of the film, um, but it, it really becomes apparent. The, the crucial event is uh, when he... when. They are sent out on a, a, a mission, right? And then they're radioed and told to turn back because of bad weather conditions, I think it was. Um, but uh, Savage does not turn back. His group of planes do not turn back. They continue. They go, on the, they, they, they go to the target. They bomb the target successfully and come back, right? He thinks he's in huge trouble. And he's still under the impression that all of these pilots uh, who had who have put in for transfer are going to be more than eager to leave at this point because he's he's kind of endangered them uh, more than what's necessary given this or, this uh, order to come back. And uh, Major Stovall, who all the while uh, has assured him that he's going to stonewall these transfer uh, mm-hmm. requests. Um, uh, he he has successfully managed to do that, um, but uh, he discovers uh, because one of the pilots he had actually turned his side relatively early, given him the air exec position. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, uh, comes to him and says, "Not a one of those guys." Uh, an IG came, Inspector General came, and not not one of those pilots said he wanted to go through with the transfer request. They're all wanting to stay, right? That's the crucial point in this film where he wins these guys over with the treatment he did. Um, And then it's also, like you said, shortly thereafter they go on this other mission that the film spends a lot of time on, and he sees several of these men that he's formed attachments to get shot down. They don't make it back. Then he's you see him kind of uh, reversing roles, as you said, with the uh, Davenport character. He becomes more like Davenport, which is completely natural. And it's not like he never was. But as you get to know people, naturally, you're concerned for their well-being. And it becomes a devastating thing when you do lose them. Um, and I, I think the, the the message here is that that is inevitable. It's going to happen to all leaders unless they're just completely cold and, and uncaring. This will occur. So you have to steel yourself toward it and, um, and be aware that this is kind of a, for lack of a better term, a hazard, yet also an obligation um, for the military professional officer, right? Uh, 
it, it is a professional it is a profession and as a profession it has certain sworn duties that uh, simply aren't there for the ordinary person right uh, the officer swears to defend the Constitution of the United States that's a very big thing and obviously to defend the country preserve and defend the uh, uh, existence of our country so when you're in a position where you've taken that sworn duty there are certain things you have to do and, and probably the key thing you have to do is put the the accomplishment of the mission first and uh, unfortunately the well-being of your unit or the people under you have to come second with regard to that and that's a that's creates almost necessarily a a a moral and psychological conflict that is very well represented in those two main characters we see davenport's very much a welfare of the guys kind of person mm-hmm. savage although he's playing a role and that's a key thing here he's playing a role he's, he's he is an officer he's got these duties that he's obliged to um uh, undertake um, but he's very much more the mission-oriented guy, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the difficult thing about being a military officer. You have this du- duality, and you have to na- navigate it, and there's there's no textbook telling you how to do it, um, and especially in actual combat op- uh, uh, situations. it's uh, It can be stressful and emo- take an emotional toll on you, as we, as we see with the Savage character by the end of that film. Okay, um, getting close to the end of my questions here. Um, two, just want to bring up briefly before we wrap this up. I know Steven Spielberg is teaming up with Tom Hanks again to make a series about this same the same Air Force. It's the Eighth Air Force, I believe. Yes, it is. It was based on a novel called, or not a fiction book called, Masters of the Air. And this has been in development, I know, for years. The first time I heard about it was all the way back in 2012. So, yeah. But last thing I heard about it was they were. It was originally supposed to be on HBO, like Band of Brothers in the Pacific, which Spielberg and Hanks both worked on. But it's now been moved to Apple Plus. Okay. Which um, also, speaking of Hanks, that's where Greyhound came out on. Yeah. So I don't know what that's that article is almost a year old. So especially with everything that's going on nowadays, I don't know if it's been further delayed again. But it's been delayed. It's been talked about so many times. It's almost been a decade since they first discussed this. So I'm wondering. I would love to see it. I wonder how it would look against this. So you have to feel that Spielberg, the big World War II fan that he is, has to have seen this movie. I wonder what he would. He's going to bring any influence from this film into that series whenever it comes out. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. And I, I, the same thing, I think at the last I saw anything about it was at least three years ago. And uh, it looked from what I saw that that release was imminent. So I, I, I was under the impression they'd have already perhaps started filming or finished filming. Um, but I, it's been radio silence for years now, so I don't know what's happened with it, but it would be clearly... It's still in production as far as I know. It's still got the green light. I just don't know if they've started filming it. Yeah, and and you you can just imagine what Spielberg could do with a bombing run over Germany in the early parts of this war when you did not have air support. Flack all around, flying like this for 
hours and then having to go in low over your target so that you can do as close as possible precision bombing. That would be harrowing. It would be fantastic with their, the special effects capabilities um, he has. Um, I can't wait, but I just yeah. don't know if it's ever going to well, come out. We'll just have to sit and wait. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. And be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. <laughs>